As we continue our series through the Gospel of Mark this morning, we come to two different sections that are both profoundly important to understanding the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and I'll show you why. Both of these sections, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, and the beginning of his preaching ministry in Galilee, show us, and what Mark is telling us is, that to live your life, it's in submission to anything other than the Lordship of Jesus Christ falls utterly short and is profoundly less hopeful than a life lived following Christ, even at great cost. Now, I'm just going to point out three things that Mark does in both of these sections, and I'll make a few comments about their implications for us today. So the first thing that we see beginning in verse Uh, 12 and 13 is this, is the authority of Christ is demonstrated. Meaning that Jesus demonstrates his divine authority as the Son of God, showing himself to be supreme above all else. Remember that last week, Jesus has been anointed in his baptism. He's called the Son of God, the second member of the eternal Godhead, and he's the one in whom the Father is well pleased. But now, what Jesus is going to do is demonstrate what that means. And here's how he does it. The text says that the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, drives him into the wilderness and that he was there being tempted by Satan for 40 days. In the Bible, if you're a student of the Bible, you probably immediately recognize this pattern of God sending his anointed prophets and his people into a time of testing, often in something called the wilderness. Now, when you see the number 40 in the Bible, you may know this as well, that this is almost always the case. Think of Noah on the ark for 40 days while the earth is flooded. Think of Moses fasting and being on Mount Sinai for 40 days or Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. And there's a few others, Elijah and Ezekiel, they endure 40 days of fasting and testing. And often what we see in this pattern is failure. That God's people, even his own anointed prophets, they don't endure the time of testing. They don't endure the temptation. So the significance of Jesus entering into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and and being thirsty and having real temptation follows the pattern of the Bible. Follows the pattern of testing and being faced with real temptation. And let me point out this, that what Mark is doing is that, that word tempted is in an ongoing tense, meaning that Jesus is tempted constantly. The entirety of the 40 days he's tempted. So if you're, again, a student of the Bible, what you may notice immediately is how brief Mark is. He's brief generally, but he's particularly brief here. In the other gospel accounts, we actually see dialogue between Jesus and Satan in the particular ways that Satan is tempting Jesus. He even quotes scripture to Jesus. But Mark is brief. Why? It's because he's emphasizing something. He's emphasizing that the entire 40 days is filled with temptation. 
Why is Mark doing this? Well, the significance that Mark is pointing out is that Jesus is doing what everyone before him has failed to do. And Jesus does it more excellently. In other words, what Mark is saying is, Jesus is more excellent than Moses. Jesus is more excellent than Elijah and Ezekiel. He's the most excellent prophet. He's the more excellent and true Israel. He faces the same temptations, hunger, the same thirst, the same temptation to turn away from God's plan, but Jesus never gives in. He endures perfectly, doing what could never have been done before him. And actually, what Mark says is that Jesus' experience is actually harder. Verse 15, when it says that he was with the wild beast, that means two things. I'll give you the first one now. I'll save the next one for a min- uh, in a couple minutes. What Mark is saying here is actually going back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now, Adam was created in paradise. He, he had... Um, All Adam was commanded to do was to not eat of the tree that God forbid him to eat from. And Adam was unable to do that. In a state of perfection, he's unable to cease giving in to the temptation. Now, Jesus endures temptation with the wild beasts. Whereas Adam gave in to temptation with the calm beasts. With the beasts that he had perfect dominion over in a time where sin did not corrupt nature. And Adam gives in. See, Jesus' temptation is harder. He's the more excellent Adam, as Romans 5 points out. Actually, Paul says in Romans 5 that Jesus is the last Adam, meaning that Jesus accomplishes what Adam was created to do so that he is more excellent than Adam. So Jesus, he overcomes the wilderness, he overcomes the temptation of Satan, he overcomes the weakness of his humanity, and he does what can never and has never been done before. And here's the key to this, friends. He does it for you and on your behalf. So what is the implication of this? Well, there's, there's many, but here's just a few. First, when you give in to temptation, when something comes from outside of you and you give in to it, whether that be lust or jealousy, covetousness, anger, and causes you to sin. And the law of God is accusing you of your sin. And Satan tempts you to doubt your love for God and even God's love for you. Friends, cling to Christ. He endured through the wilderness, through temptation for you. He lived a life that you and I are unable to. And never can. And by simple faith, he actually gives you his own merits. His own righteousness. As if they were our very own. In other words, when you fail, you have a more excellent substitute. That you can look to and he will always give you what you cannot attain on your own. He will give you the merit of a perfect and sinless life as if it's yours. That's what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness outside of you. It means to have a real substitute. A more excellent substitute. A substitute that stood in your place and did what we cannot. 
Second, when you face temptation and there is opportunity for you to give into it, it's actually give into sin. You're not only able to look to Christ for as, as your righteousness, but you're able to know that tem- the temptation to sin is not from God. It's from the weakness of the flesh, the lure of the world. It's from the enemy of God who loves evil. It's from sinful places. Now, one quick word on this. There's a difference between temptation and testing. God can test his people to produce godliness or to approve of them or to carry out his divine will. And he even uses suffering to produce godly character in us. Think of Abraham being called to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22. Think of the story of Job. But James 1 says that God is not tempted by evil. Sinful temptation comes from sinful places, including our very own hearts, corrupted, disordered. Jeremiah 17 talks about this. The heart is deceitful above all else. Testing, though, can come from God, where he produces in us, as James says, a steadfastness and godly character that we more and more look like him, that by his power we endure it. But Jesus overcomes all of this for us and he demonstrated his authority as the Son of God by never giving into temptation, by enduring the wilderness. And here's the key to this. Where the authority of Jesus is demonstrated, what happens here in the temptation narrative, the kingdom of Jesus is expanded. And that's our second point that the text is showing us. The kingdom of Christ is expanded. Now that he has demonstrated his divine authority, Jesus, he returns to Galilee to begin to expand his kingdom. But he doesn't do this through conquest or uh, in a political overthrowing or, or in any type of temporal way. No, how does he do it? He does it in preaching. Moreover, preaching the gospel and the kingdom of God. Now, why is this significant? Well, two things. The first is that The Jewish people are anticipating a political leader, an uprising to overthrow the Romans, and their Messiah, the one who would come and deliver them salvation, is going to do that temporally. There's going to be conquest. So when the Jews are hearing any stirring about the Messiah on the way, immediately what they think about is something that happened 150 years ago before this time, which is the Maccabean Revolt which is as Rome and Hellenistic influence is coming into Jerusalem, the Jews revolt and they win and they push back temporarily the influence of the Romans. This is what they have in mind. When they hear the word Messiah, this is what the Jewish people are thinking. A military leader leading them into battle and establishing the kingdom of God in Jerusalem as an economically prosperous and powerful nation-state. Second, under Roman occupation, it was the law to confess that Caesar was Lord. He was actually seen as divine. For Jesus to come and preach and proclaim a kingdom other than the established Roman Empire goes against this. So to be a Christian, in other words, which is to confess at its core that Jesus is Lord, is to commit treason. 
And this is why Mark points out in verse 14 that John the Baptist had been arrested. Two quick reasons. One is it's a timestamp telling us God acts in real history and uses real people. But second, that to follow Jesus comes at great cost. At this time, you would have been arrested for saying Jesus is Lord. Because Caesar was Lord. Say Jesus is Lord was treason. You may have even, as we know now, John the Baptist, you may have even been killed. And notice quickly, the next section in Mark is the call of the disciples. You go through the list of the disciples, all but one are martyred for their faith. To call Jesus Lord is quite costly. Now let me go back to that second point about the wild beasts and give you that now. Mark's audience is primarily a Gentile audience. Matthew's gospel is primarily a Jewish audience. Mark's writing to a primarily Gentile audience, specifically newly converted Christians in Rome. And these Christians, under the persecution of Emperor Nero around AD 50, are being killed for their faith in just terrible ways. One of the ways that they would be killed is by being publicly executed by being thrown to lions. But Mark is saying, you're being thrown to wild beasts, you're, you're about to face death? Guess what? Jesus faced the beasts too. Jesus faced them, and he did that for you. Keep the faith. Jesus is Lord. It will cost you everything. But Jesus is Lord. And Mark is saying his kingdom is expanding because he's demonstrated himself as Lord. And and guess what? Later, Jesus will face a greater temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. He awaiting a worse suffering in the cross. Crucified under a Roman governor. A real person in real history. What Mark is saying here is Jesus paid it all. To follow him will be costly, but... This is how he's expanding his kingdom in preaching and in demonstrating his lordship over our affections and our desires, not in temporal conquest. So what are the implications of Jesus' lordship and his kingdom expanding? It's first, to follow Jesus may cost you everything. This is why that later he'll say in Mark 8 that if anyone would follow Jesus, he must pick up his cross to follow him. In other words, Christians will endure great suffering. They will endure great trials and testing, endure public humiliation and even mockery. Now who, if you're hearing this, you're like, who would subject themselves to this willingly, right? You must be an insane person to follow Jesus if it's going to cost this much. Well, that's only true if Jesus, if Jesus isn't God. But if he is God, If his claims about himself were real, not just real to you, but real in history, then losing everything to follow Jesus is actually the sanest thing you could possibly do. Second, to follow Jesus is to be challenged by his teachings. If Jesus is Lord, then that means that he is in charge. If Jesus is Lord, then that means that what he says says, goes. To follow him may mean that you don't always get your way, but he is your Lord, so you follow him no matter what the cost. 
One pastor I listen to a lot, he, he puts it like this. He says, if you're following a God and that God never disagrees with you, then it's very likely you're actually following an idealized version of yourself. So Jesus is Lord means that he is Lord. It means that no one else is. Particularly ourselves. That means that I am not Lord. That's hard for us. I like to be Lord. But to call Jesus Lord means to learn all that he taught us. It means to let him lead us in what he truly said. That means we'll be challenged because we're not always going to get it right, friends. And we need to accept the correction that he has for us. Third thing, Jesus' kingdom expanding means that his kingdom expands in his time and according to his appointed means. God's kingdom of Jesus' kingship is established in the midst of enemy occupation. In other words, Jesus comes and instead of bringing a battle cry, he preaches a message. Instead of a great army, he gathers 12 lowly disciples. Instead of using weapons, he appoints bread and wine. Instead of calling Christians to take up power and to try to seize power, he calls you to lay it down. And he says that true power, the true power of the Christian is to give of yourself to others. Give of yourself to others. Give yourself to God. Often that comes at great cost, which is why it's hard for us. But this is his kingdom expanding as Christians are called to lay down power, to love and serve as our Lord loved and served us. No greater love is this than a man lay down his life for his friends. Lay down power. This is how Jesus expands his kingdom. And this is the last, the last point. The gospel of Christ is proclaimed. Verse 15. Jesus' message is simple. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of what God had promised to accomplish beforehand, namely to undo the effects of sin and death. Think of Genesis 3.15, the promise to, to Adam and Eve and that God would send forth a man born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent, undo sin and death. Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled. I am coming now. It has begun. Jesus coming, his preaching, his life, is God coming into real history and acting to deliver his promises, to begin to undo the curse of sin in the world, to bring redemption to God's people, to make a way for them to be in a relationship with one another and with him again, to bring his cosmic and eternal shalom, his peace, to reorder everything according to his law of love. Jesus is bringing God's kingdom and initiating his reign, and he's declaring his lordship, and he does this with an announcement, a gospel, literally a message of, of good news by preaching a message that consists of merely two things, and I'll go through them quickly because we could spend weeks on repentance and faith. First, repentance. 
What comes into focus in the beginning of Mark's gospel is that God sends Jesus to fulfill his promises and to proclaim his lordship. But it's a kingdom not built on conquest, but built on renewal. Jesus' message, the good news, it doesn't have anything to do with any type of temporal reign, but it begins with an inner renewal, an inner reworking of the heart. Jesus' lordship, it doesn't go after Jerusalem. It goes after the heart, our affections, our desires. And repentance, simply put, is the reordering of our desires and affections after the image of Christ, that we turn from them to him, that we more and more leave sin behind. We mortify the flesh and the sinful desires. We turn from it and we look to live like he is our Lord. Second, to believe the gospel. In other words, friends, to rest and receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. To cling to his life, his death, and his resurrection as the foundation of your salvation. Not your own works, not your own doing, because he lived the life that you cannot. To see that as the foundation of your salvation. And this also means that there's ongoing trust in God's promises now. That he is still renewing all things, beginning with the heart. See, without repentance and faith, it is impossible to understand Jesus. What lies at the heart of both and of his message is his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So what are the implications of this? Well, friends, it's the opposite of fear. To have faith in Christ, to acknowledge Jesus as Lord... To have faith, to trust, to rest in him for your salvation is to have no fear in the temporal. No fear in temporal threats. No fear in pain and suffering. No fear in grief. How is this possible? It's because your hope rests on an eternal, true salvation accomplished for you. An eternal hope that stands on the real, fulfilled promises of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's eternal hope. That means that Christians can get through anything. Somehow you say, how can I get through this? I can't imagine it getting any worse. Somehow Christians can have an eternal hope because there was a real Savior who accomplished real righteousness for us, friends. That's real hope. That's real hope calling Jesus Lord. So Jesus' lordship is the antidote to all fear, to all hopelessness. Somehow it is because this is how we were created to live. We were created to to live for the glory of God, to be in a true, loving union with him and with one another. And Jesus accomplishes that possibility for us. He lives the life that you and I can never live for us. Dies the death that we deserve for us. Friend, if you long to rest, if you long to make sense of the world, if you long for hope, call Jesus your Lord. Even at great cost, call Jesus your Lord and rest in him this morning who did what you could not do for yourself. Rest in Christ, friend. He loves you deeply. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to present ourselves and 
all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to our final heavenly dwelling. Well, there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.